Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keefley, and today we're presenting the second half of our two-part Christmas special on the theological implications of the birth of Christ. We'll be continuing our discussion on what the Bible really says about the Christmas story and the impact it has on our Christian faith. Don't miss out on the first part of the conversation available now on the Christ and Culture podcast. Hi everyone, I'm Nathaniel Williams, and I work alongside Dr. Keith Lee here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. For our Christmas episode, we have the privilege of hearing from Dr. Keith Lee himself. While he usually serves as the host of our conversations, today we're handing him the mic once again to share his theological insights on the Christmas story. Dr. Keith Lee is a senior professor of theology and the Jesse Hendley Chair of Theology at Southeastern. He's also the director of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. Dr. Keithley is the author of Salvation and Sovereignty, A Molinist Approach, co-author of 40 Questions About Creation and Evolution, and co-editor of Old Earth or Evolutionary Creation, Discussing Origins with Reasons to Believe in Biologos. He and his wife Penny have been married since 1980, and they currently live in Wake Forest, North Carolina. They have a son and a daughter, both married, and four grandchildren. We're excited to continue this conversation today. Dr. Keithley, how are you doing today? Thank you, Nathaniel, and Merry Christmas to you also. I'm doing great. Excellent. Let's jump right into it. When we think of Christmas, we often think of trees and tinsel or gingerbread or cocoa or cookies. Very rarely do we think of theology, uh, but there are a lot of really important theological doctrines kind of woven together in the Christmas story. So. Uh, let me just throw one to you first, the doctrine of the Incarnation. Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean? Yeah, the, you're absolutely correct in that uh, Christmas, more than anything else, is teaching a tremendous theological truth about Jesus of Nazareth. And the Incarnation is directly connected to uh, Easter, that if Jesus was not who uh, the Bible says he is, then he would not have been able to do what the Bible says that he did. Um, because he was the incarnate Son of God, born to be truly human, uh, and then as a result, live a life under the covenant of Abraham, of the household of Israel, and live the life uh, in complete obedience to the Mosaic law. In other words, here was the first true human being. I know that sounds a little strange uh, to hear me say that, but think of it this way. Jesus Christ is the only normal person who's ever lived uh, in that he has lived the life that was intended by the will of God. So he lived the life you and I should live, but haven't. And so here he lives in perfect obedience under the law. Uh, so. Uh, 
he presents himself for who he truly is, which is the Christ, and he came unto his own, and his own don't receive him. In fact, he's rejected. He's handed over to the Romans, and, you know, what do we of the world do with him? We put him to death. He dies, buried, rose again from the dead. What he accomplished there uh, on Good Friday and Easter Sunday through his death, burial, and resurrection, the reason he's able to do that is because of who he is. And who is he as we see him there in born uh, in the manger uh, in, in Bethlehem? And that is he is the incarnate son of God. So who he is is what makes everything uh, able to happen in his life. So we think about the fact that Jesus, kind of as you're saying here, is God and man. Um, how does that work? I mean, there's a lot of wrong ways that we could <laughs> we could fall off the, the side of the cliff here trying to describe this and get it wrong. What is the right way to think about how that works? Is it 50-50? Like, how is the right way to think yeah. about that? Yeah, he's, it's one thing. <laughs> a lot of people, I think, do think, Nathaniel, that somehow Jesus is half God and half man. The Bible doesn't present him that way, nor has the church ever said it in, those, in that, that way. What we would affirm is that Jesus is truly human and truly divine at the same time. And what we mean by that is that everything that it means for God to be God, Jesus is God. And everything it means for a man to be a man, Jesus is a man. He is both. Now you think, well, why would that matter? I mean, why can't we just simply look upon him as, as somebody who was just a very special man that God gave him? a mission, called him, just like he would have perhaps called Moses or any other of the great prophets. Uh, and I am reminded of a conversation I had one time with a Muslim friend of mine. And it was, uh, you know, we, we, we were students together at a state university, and we were studying for finals together. And as, you know, here I was a Christian, and he was a just a, he's just a wonderful friend, a wonderful, uh, uh, and I, I really come to appreciate him. But he said to me, he said, I could never become a Christian because Christians think that God is a crooked judge. I said, well, you know, I'd never heard that. And I said, what makes you think that God is a crooked judge? He said, well, you as a Christian believe that God condemned an innocent man, Jesus, on your behalf, you're, you're guilty and worthy of punishment, worthy of death, and God punished an innocent man on your behalf. And he said, what kind of judge does that? He said, imagine, he said, that uh, uh, I was guilty of a, of a capital crime. He said, imagine I was guilty of murder. And you came in just before as I was getting ready to be sentenced to, to execution. You came in and said, Judge, I love this man like my brother. Judge me instead. Condemn me instead. Let me die in his place. He said, only a crooked judge would find an innocent man guilty and a guilty man innocent. And he said, so I, I, could, never, I could never become a Christian because this makes God a crooked judge. Well, Here's where the doctrine of the Incarnation is so very important. Because, yes, we do believe that Jesus is, and was, and is an innocent man, but we don't think that simply about him. And here's where um, 
you know, Billy Graham uh, doesn't get the kind of credit that he ought to get for being as theologically astute as he was. I mean, he preached such simple, plain sermons that people somehow uh, sometimes fail to appreciate just the theological insights that he was able to communicate in such a clear way. And I remember hearing uh, uh, him tell about back when he was a young minister, just starting out uh, and preaching, and as he uh, was traveling, trying to get quickly to a, a place in North Carolina, these, this is before the days of interstate, whatever, he was trying to get, he got pulled over by a, a county a deputy for speeding. And back in those days, Nathaniel, you're going to be far too young to remember this, but back in those days, if you got pulled over by, by a policeman uh, for speeding, they took you to the judge right then. And if you were not able to pay the fine right then, you spent the night in jail until the money finally arrived. Now, I know this to be true. Don't ask me how I know this to be true. But I'm just telling you that if you, uh, if you were caught speeding, and this is what happened to Billy Graham. Here he is, a young man, younger than you at that time. He was just a young man in his 20s uh, trying to get somewhere to preach. He gets pulled over, you know, taken to the judge, and the judge was also the town barber. And so he's cutting somebody's hair uh, as, as Billy Graham is brought in to be, you know, on trial for speeding. Now, it sounds like an episode of, of, Andy, of Andy Griffith. Griffith. Yeah, yeah, it does, doesn't like it? Andy Griffith. Uh, and so the judge says, okay, court is in session. And he says, uh, Reverend Graham, uh, the accusation is speeding. How do you plead? And Billy Graham said, guilty, Your Honor. And the uh, judge said, that'll be a $20 fine. That's another sign that it was a long time ago. <laughs> and, and, and he, Inflation it, has yeah, changed. Yeah, and he years. said, uh, that'll be a $20 fine. Uh, and then he, the judge did something very surprising. The judge reached in his pocket and he said, but I'm going to take care of this myself. And he reached in his wallet and he took out $20 and he paid it himself. And Billy Graham said, said, see, this was a just judge. You see, what he didn't do is that whenever the deputy brought Billy Graham in, he didn't say, well, Barney, what are you doing bringing Billy Graham in here? How can he win the world to Christ at 35 miles an hour? Let him go. That would have made him a crooked judge because he would have turned a blind eye to that to to Dr. Graham's uh, crimes. On the other hand, what he, else he couldn't do was say, uh, "I fine you twenty dollars, Barney. You pay it." That would have been like my Muslim friend was thinking, where he had an innocent man pay on behalf of a guilty man. No, the only way the judge could be both just and gracious is if he found Dr. Graham guilty and then paid it himself. And that is what Romans 3.26 says, that the magnificent truth of the incarnation, that Jesus Christ is both God and man, is the way that God could be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. How could it be so? is because God found you and me guilty and then said, but I'm going to pay for this myself. And it is God himself, God with us, Emmanuel, who is hanging on the cross. And this is the beautiful truth of the incarnation, is that, yes, it is an innocent man dying on behalf of the guilty, but it's not just 
an innocent man. It is God himself dying on our behalf. And this is what lets us know that salvation, if Jesus were merely a created being, that's the old heresy of the Arians, then what Jesus' death would have demonstrated is that this is how the creature is to please the creator and therefore salvation is by works. But if Jesus is the divine son of God, then what you have on the cross is God satisfying himself and salvation is by grace. And that's why the incarnation is so crucial and integral to the Christian faith. Yeah, so what I hear you saying is that the incarnation is really neat in and of itself, but it is most significant when understood in light of salvation, in light of the doctrine of the atonement. That's where we see why it matters so much uh, is in light of, of, of what Jesus did on the cross. So then it brings up the question, what were the Jews expecting? Um, you know, when, when you look at what the Old Testament uh, and the prophecies, you know, what were they expecting? Were they expecting, you know, a, a, a general or a soldier or, or whatever? And, and what you find is in the Old Testament that were, there were a basically a, a number of expectations. Um, you know, they were promised a coming deliverer uh, in Second Samuel chapter 7. You have uh, the Davidic covenant uh, where God, if you remember, King David decides, uh, you know, hey, I'm living in a palace. All we have for God to be worshipped is in the tabernacle. It's time to build the temple. So he thinks he's going to do it. God sends Nathan the prophet to come to him and say, uh, no, you're not going to do it, but, but your son will. And then, in addition to that, he says, and I also am going to promise you, and he says, there will always be, there will ultimately be one of your descendants upon the throne forever. And this is the what's known as the Davidic promise. And so you find the Davidic covenant um, made in 2 Samuel 7, and you find all through the Old Testament where the prophets refer back to that, whether it's Jeremiah or Ezekiel. So they, they were looking first uh, for a coming deliverer. Uh, who would be of the house of David. Um, and then the second thing they were looking for was uh, an eschatological deliverance, and that is, you know, an end times kind of thing. Uh, a lot of messianic passages really don't speak specifically about a coming king, but they do make really broad promises. Uh, Israel was promised an eventual, eventual ultimate victory, uh, and there would be an ultimate vindication that would usher in a new age. So they knew that there's a coming deliverer, and at the end of the age, there's going to be this victory and vindication. And then the third type of promise that they had was that God himself would be the deliverer. Uh, that was the interesting thing that the third thing is that uh, often the promise, uh, the prophets uh, promised Israel uh, that God himself would personally intervene and he would personally move uh, in judgment and deliverance. Uh, and so they were, you had those three sets of promises through the Old Testament. That, so they had those two things to look forward to. So you find them then whenever you look at like things like uh, the, the intertestamental writings of, of the, 
of the Jews, whether it's the Dead Sea Scrolls or things of that nature. They were looking for a king. Uh, they were also looking for uh, someone who was going to be a priest, a prophet. And so this raised some kind of questions in their mind. How could he be both a, a king uh, and a priest? Because the king is of the tribe of Judah and the priest is of the Levites. Uh, and so there were times that they actually um, thought, well, maybe there'll be two messiahs. Um, and of course, the answer to that is uh, it, given to us in the book of Hebrews is that, yes, he is of the tribe of David, but he's of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And, and that is how he is both, pre, uh, both king and priest, certainly was a prophet. And also, they looked at the promises given in Daniel chapter 7. You know, whenever we think of, of, of the Christmas story, we think of Matthew's genealogy, and you think of Luke's story of, of the shepherds. We don't think of the Gospel of Mark very much uh, because it starts, you know, as Jesus is an adult. But if you'll notice, Jesus is referred in the Gospel of Mark over and over again as the Son of Man. Now, what in the world is that talking about? It's a reference to Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, uh, Daniel has the vision in which he sees the Ancient of Days. Uh, and as he sees the Ancient of Days uh, on his throne, there is one who comes to him, the Son of Man, who is also divine and is going to be a deliverer. And so over and over again, we find in the Gospel records, in Mark in particular, Jesus is referred to and refers to himself as the Son of Man. And this is a reference to uh, his, even though it's, you know, you think, okay, it's the Son of Man, that's not, he's, he's a human. Yes, he is a human, but that's not what the Son of Man is making reference to. The, the paradoxical thing about that reference, it's actually a reference to his deity. So what were, the, what were the Jews looking forward to? They were looking forward to God delivering them through uh, a descendant of David who would somehow be divine. And then in comes Jesus on the scene, and he doesn't quite meet all of their expectations, although we see later uh, that he is who uh, the, the, the Old Testament looks to as the Messiah. But you made a lot of references there to, to the Gospels and how they use the Old Testament and how they are um, connecting the dots for us in a certain way. You know, you mentioned Mark, how he uses the Son of Man, and he is fully expecting that we would know what he's talking about. Or we, meant, you know, talked about um, uh, Matthew and his gospel and how he uses the genealogy and mentions a bunch of names and others. What does this tell us? How, how they reference the Old Testament so heavily to tell us who Jesus is. What does this tell us about the doctrine of Scripture? The fact that these old, old documents, these old prophecies from hundreds and hundreds of years before are being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. What does that tell us about how Scripture works, how it is inspired? Yeah, it tells, us, it tells us not only how Scripture works, it tells us how God works. It lets us know that God, not only God is, the deist believe that there is a God. And, and I, I think you'd find a lot of people who would say, yeah, I believe there's, there's, there may be something transcendent out there. What people struggle with is that whoever created the universe is actually involved here on planet Earth. Uh, 
And that's what uh, the biblical story tells us. Not only that God is, but that God speaks and that he's active and that he's involved and that he is taking steps to save us from our plight, which is one of darkness, sin, and death. And so uh, the very fact that God does it the way that he does in, in history, and we see this progression that starts all the way, like I said, uh, of course you have the account in Genesis, but Genesis chapter 12, you have where Abraham is called at a very particular man uh, in a particular time and place to do a work that, it, that goes all the way through the Old Testament, and then it culminates then in the New Testament. Uh, and Jesus is somebody rooted in history. We talked about this last week. Um, uh, he's anchored in history. He is somebody, uh, this lets us know that this is a God who's involved, that when we pray to him, he hears us, that he's active in our hearts and lives. And so we're not left to wander and we're not left to, to stumble about. We do have someone who is truly uh, here uh, with us and for us. So that's what it's letting us know. And let's face it, uh, who doesn't like uh, a great twist on a story? The one thing that we find that's so surprising um, is that Israel's looking for its Messiah. Um, centuries go by, and when he shows up, they don't receive him. Uh, who saw that coming? Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and that was the thing that I mean, a lot of people don't realize that that is really the big question of the book of Romans. I mean, you have, you think, why is Paul writing Romans, the, the book of Romans, to the church at Rome? You know, there's a lot of reasons why he's doing it. But when you get to Romans chapters 9 through 11, uh, he's addressing the question, uh, why should people in Rome believe in a Messiah that was rejected in Jerusalem? Uh, what's going on here? And so it asked the question, uh, did the word of God fail? In other words, he, Jesus shows up. Um, they reject him. Uh, so what does this mean? Did God have to go to plan B? Uh, is, is the church God's consolation prize? Uh, you know, well, I couldn't get it to work with Israel. I'll try it here now with, with the Gentiles. And, and Paul says, no, uh, actually, this is part of a very intricate, magnificent plan that is far too marvelous and a work of genius for us to even begin to grasp. And so he says, you know, no, God's word hasn't failed. This is actually everything going according to plan. Uh, and then you, you, you even have, then you say, well, you, could, you can almost hear the uh, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin then in Romans 9 saying, well, then how can he find fault? If I was actually doing God's will by rejecting Christ, you know, why, why am I culpable? And he says, who are you, old man, to speak this way to God? And what he's saying to them there is, is look, the fact that God is able to use your unbelief and use your sins in order to accomplish his will doesn't make us, doesn't get us off the hook for our sins and unbelief. It just means that God is a magnificent and, and tremendous God. And so Romans 9 is, is dealing with that all the way through at chapters 10 and 11. How is this that it happened this way? And uh, it's marvelous. It's beautiful and it's glorious. It lets us know by Jesus being born in, in, a, in a manger of all things. 
and living a life of obscurity. And then when he arrives, people are surprised, amazed, impressed, but more than anything else, scandalized. Uh, and eventually they reject him. Uh, it, it, it lets us know, uh, number one, something very terrible about the human condition. God finally shows up, and we meet him, and we kill him. Uh, and yet, I mean, what is the greatest crime that humanity has ever committed? And that is that we put the Son of God to death. What is the greatest thing that's ever happened in history? And that is that Jesus died for our sins. And so God took that which is the very worst and turned it into the very best, which is the kind of God the Bible presents him to be. That's beautiful. You know, you think about uh, the Christmas lights are nice, the uh, gingerbread is okay, but this is far more beautiful and glorious than any uh, Christmas light display could ever be. I mean, thinking about that. You know, many of our listeners today may be thinking, you know, Dr. Keithley, you have touched on different topics, and I want to learn more about these. There's only so much we can we can say in a podcast. If there's a listener out there who wants to gain a deeper understanding of the theology of the Christmas story or just theology in general, what would you recommend to them? Nathaniel, that's a great question. And when we're talking about theology in general, I think a great introduction is J.I. Packer's Knowing God. And so I always recommend uh, that text for someone who just wants to know more about theology in a way that really does center uh, theology on Jesus Christ and the gospel. For those who are wanting to have resources uh, specifically directed towards Christmas, Southeastern has got a great Advent calendar this week, and uh, we will have that available. Uh, I take it that you can have it available in uh, at the Intersect website and on this podcast. What do they need to do? Yeah, uh, we'll have that link to at intersectproject.org. If you're reading the show notes, we'll try to have some information down there uh, about how you can access that particular resource and grow in your worship of God this particular Christmas. Dr. Keithley, uh, I uh, leave this conversation more in awe of God than when I started. So thank you for sharing with us about the Christmas story today. I enjoyed the opportunity. And if you're listening, uh, do us a huge favor. Head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. This will be tremendously helpful for us as we seek to spread the word about Christ and culture and also just hear from you about how we're doing. Uh, This is the last episode of 2020. We'll be back in January with new episodes of Christ and Culture. Thank you for listening and from all of us here at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture, we wish you a very Merry Christmas.